Would you open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 5 again, beginning with verse 16. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 16. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Let us pray. Father, thank you this morning again for your word, and we pray that you will bring our hearts and minds under it by the power of your spirit. Make us submitters, obeyers, those who honor this word and its truths, that we may go from this place wiser, but also more obedient, changed, because we have seen here ourselves and you and your glory and have grown in our faith. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts on every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You'll forgive me for clearing my throat a lot. That's my situation. Don't use cleaning supplies in a closed space or you'll burn your throat. Um, This morning we return to Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. And we see that this text begins with the command, walk by the Spirit. And to remind us what we've learned about this, we learned, first of all, that this Spirit that's spoken of is the Holy Spirit. The one that Jesus spoke of when he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And so when it says walk by the Spirit, this is the Spirit that the Apostle Paul is speaking to us of. It's the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that the world cannot have, that the world doesn't have. It is the Spirit that we do have, those of us who are true believers in Jesus Christ. It does say not run by the Spirit or sleep by the Spirit or think by the Spirit or feel by the Spirit, but it says walk by the Spirit. And last week we saw that walking is a certain distinct pace. It's different from running or cantering or galloping or stopping. It's walking and it takes you somewhere. There's a goal and steady progress is made toward that goal. And that steady progress towards the goal of walking by the Spirit 
is called sanctification. And it is a process, and it goes on. Now, let me ask you, do you walk by the Spirit? Each day, is there evidence in your life that you are walking by the power of the Holy Spirit and that you are making progress toward the kingdom of God by that Spirit's power? And can others who watch you see that you are walking by the Spirit? Your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, the person you work with, the person you room with. Now, the Holy Spirit is at war with the flesh, as the Apostle Paul speaks of it here. And there can't be any truce. In verse 17, it says the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So those who are true believers in Jesus Christ know of this battle between the flesh and the Spirit, and they know that doing the things we please is at the center of this battle. But the good news is that for the believer, the battle's end is in sight and there's no doubt concerning who will win and who will lose. And as I read back over what I said last week, I regret some of the things that I said. Because last week I was talking as if we're in limbo. We don't know who will win. You know, the flesh and the spirit are in mutual competition with each other. Well, that's true. But it's absolutely clear who will win. The one that will win is God. God wins everything. And God allows in this life there to be uh, setbacks, to be defeats, to be for Christians uh, times of discipline and times of suffering. For unbelievers, he gives them times where they appear to be victorious. That's what Psalm 73 is all about. But we know that it's not true that ultimately, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And you'll find in the book of Psalms, many Psalms where the psalmist rejoices not just in the coming glory for those who belong to God, but he rejoices in the coming judgment of the unjust, of those who uh, do, do not care for the orphans and the widows, who do not care for those who are poor, who do not care for those who are uneducated and live in trailers. All right. That God one day will bring correction to all of the prejudices that we have and all of the oppressions that exist in this world. And he will make things right. And we're told uh, not to take vengeance into our hands because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And I would ask you whether or not your heart rejoices in the coming day when the victory will be God's. Not mine, not yours. Although our God will be vindicated and we'll have enough invested in that God that we'll feel like we've been vindicated and that's proper. All right. And so we see that this contest, the opposition between the flesh and the spirit, is a contest that is for as long as we live in this world, but that the day will come when the contest will be over and God will whoop up. God will leave no question. Every knee will bow before his son, Jesus Christ. It will be clear that Christ is preeminent over all. In Jesus Christ, then, we have the victory. Now, remember last week I talked about how we can be seduced into repeating over and over like a mantra. We're seated in the heavenlies in such a way that this seated in the heavenlies can cause us to be no earthly good, to not engage with sin, to not care about oppression, to be sort of up in the sky with no reality in our lives. But being seated in the heavenlies is the perspective that we need in order to live a godly life here. We need to remember that in Christ we do have victory. And this is what seated in the heavenlies does mean. That 
as Christians, despite this flesh, this mortal combat that there is at the center of our lives, we are, even at this time, seated in the heavenlies. We are having in possession of the victory in Christ through our regeneration and our justification. And this is absolutely certain. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, it means that no matter how much of a failure that you feel, you are victorious in Jesus Christ. And this is going to be what we're going to get into this morning. Uh, your feelings are not trustworthy. I could not help but think of Petrus Rukas this morning or last yesterday as I was preparing. A dear brother pastor in our presbytery who I think probably about a year ago committed suicide. And uh, I've been reading Jonathan Edwards, and it's very interesting that Edwards, at a time when you know that the doctors were not at the center of society the way they are today. Everything today is a sickness. Everything's a disease, right? You know, you got long hair, you're a boy, you have a disease. No, I'm just kidding. It's just a joke. Um, but, you know, we talk about alcohol being a disease, and we talk about um, the disease of, of uh, even homosexuality. You know, you have a certain genetic predisposition and this is just something that needs to be. Although, of course, actually, that's not true. It's been removed from the American Psychiatric Manual as a, a disorder. So I don't know what I'm talking about. But you know what I'm saying. Everything that we cope, we struggle with, we label as a disease. And then we feel we've removed the moral judgment about it. And we can just deal with it clinically. You understand this? And, and I don't buy it. Um, you know, the fact is, if I struggle with alcohol, it's an idol. It's a moral problem. I may have a genetic predisposition to it, but so far as I know, every man has a genetic predisposition to, be, uh, uh, to have the disease of lust. And I haven't noticed any time when we all go around and talk about, you know, the clinical problem of lust as if it's just a sickness and nobody should judge it because we have a genetic predisposition. I think that's sort of intrinsic to being a man. Um, and I think that doesn't excuse it. We have to fight against it, right? Are you, you all, all you men, you know, it's like, okay. Even you? Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Even an elder. All right. And so when it comes to this issue of speaking clinically about things, we have to be very careful that it doesn't cause us to lose our understanding that we make idols, that worshiping idols is a sin, that an idol can be alcohol, it can be greed, it can be gossip and bitterness and envy, it can be a whole host of things, and, and that we don't go to Adam to have them fixed. You know, hey, Adam, give me a drug that I won't be an alcoholic anymore. It doesn't work. We take this to God. All right. Now, what's what's the application? Well, when it comes to depression and discouragement, we speak about, well, you know, if somebody commits suicide, you know, somebody must have been clinically sick, you know, and, and, and it's no failure morally. They just had a certain psychological disease. Now, I bring all of this up because if you as a Christian process your depression, there's a good chance that this text we're studying this morning is central to how you process depression. Why would I say that? Well, look at the text. Why would I say this? I'm convinced that this text was central to what tormented Petrus Rukas as he contemplated bringing his life to an end. And if you have thoughts of suicide, I'm confident that this text or the truths it contains are in your mind as you think about your condition. Why? Well, look at what it says. What the text says is, those who belong to Christ 
have crucified, past tense, the flesh with its passions and desires. All right? And you think about this and you think, well, so let's look above. Have I crucified these things, past tense? And you look and you think of morality. And you go, uh, no, I don't think I've crucified that one yet. So then you look at impurity and you think about your thought life of the past where you think, <laughs> I don't think I've crucified that one yet. And then you look above and you see next sensuality. You know, I don't think I've crucified that one yet. And then you look at idolatry and Joseph just got done saying we're idol making factories. You know, we all have idols, things we worship instead of God. I don't think I've cruised. And then you look at sorcery and you think, well, you know, I don't use Ouija boards. And that's about as deeply as we think about that, you know. And then you look at sorcery or I mean enmities and you think, well, you know, I get irritated at people when I drive occasionally. And that's about as deeply as we think about that. And then you think of strife and you think, well, that's why I left that church. But here we're at peace. And that's about as deeply as you think about that one. And then you think jealousy and you think, well, you know, I suppose I'm a little bit jealous. It does irritate me when other women brag about their children. Yesterday I saw this bumper sticker and it said, uh, it said, my dog is smarter than your honor student. <laughs> but we don't have envy. And then you see the next one and it says, uh, strife, jealousy, uh, outbursts of anger. And you say, well, that's my husband's problem, not mine. And then disputes, and you say, well, you know, if my sister-in-law wasn't such a jerk, and dissensions, and you say, well, you know, families are tough things, and factions, and you say, well, you know, the Presbyterians are wrong. And then envying, and then drunkenness, well, I don't drink alcohol, and, but you might take a sleeping pill every single night. And you go, oh, come on, you're not going to equate alcohol with sleeping pills, are you? I, and I'm going to say, no, did I do that? <laughs> In other words, come on, how many people die from legal drugs as opposed to illegal? You ever thought about that? Huge number. So in other words, if a doctor prescribes a drug, you don't have to worry about worshiping it. You don't have to worry about it taking away all of your problems of lying in bed at night and not going to God with your guilty conscience. You pop a pill and that takes care of all your spiritual dilemmas. Let's, be, let's admit that there are good uses of sleeping pills and bad ones. Some people use sleeping pills much as other people use alcohol. Drugs are drugs, right? All right. Don't worry, I'm not trying to put the pharmacies out of business. I believe in Eli Lilly. How could you live in Indiana and not believe in Eli Lilly? All right, next. Carousing. And you think, well, you know, can you imagine a 52-year-old carousing? That's not an issue with me. I mean, the younger generation, yeah. And things like these, and you think, well, you know, I think we've had enough. I don't need to go on thinking about things like these. 
And so you look at this and it goes on and it says, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. And so Paul must have made a habit of talking about this. And you think, well, what was he making a habit of talking about? And it says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, do you understand why I say that this is one of the heaviest texts? If we deal as Christians with depression and thoughts of suicide, it's likely that either this text or what it says is probably central to our thought life. I must not be a Christian. How could I be a Christian when I see at least half of these every day? So we have all these ways of dealing with this internal tension. You can kill yourself. You can say to hell with it, I'm going to kill myself. And many people do that. Jonathan Edwards had a man in his church at the center of his church, and soon after the Great Awakening started, when so many people were coming under such a conviction of sin, this man despaired of being saved. And so he killed himself. And that's one way of handling it. Another way of handling it is to drug yourself. There's such a disparity between who you are and who you know you should be, and people think you are who you should be, that you pop pills or you drink alcohol. This is the reason many, many people are alcoholics, because they can't conceive of the fact that God, let alone the person that they're married to, will love them knowing who they really are. Okay? This is the reason that many people have bad senses of humor, because humor is the way that we bridge the gap between what we know we should be and, and what we really are. And so some people, like Steve Moxie, told me when he first came in this church that he had bridged that gap constantly and that he realized it was a sin because he realized that he used humor as a way of really pulling down sacred things. So some people use humor in this way. Uh, Some people just are absolutely determined that everybody will live at their level. And so everybody is, well, he's a slimeball. Well, she's a jerk. Well, you know, he can't really sing. You know, everybody has to be pulled down because misery loves company. And I'm miserable because I can't believe that God could accept a sinner like me. And so everybody's a sinner. And the motivation that everybody has is just as perverse as my motivation. Right. And I could go on and on and on and describe the ways that we try to deal with it. Some people deal with it theologically. Some people say, well, you know, this is this is really not applicable to to, to, to people in the church. It's really talking about people outside the church. And so, you, you know, you don't preach this. You go on and preach. But the fruit of the spirit is. And to me, that's even more depressing. You know, I could maybe get a feeling that I'm having some victory over these negative things. But when you say uh, self-control, you know, that's the point where I go, (laughs) you know. And so this is why I say these texts can be very, very, very depressing and discouraging. You look at them and you say, I see an awful lot of the things that it says nobody who gives himself to these things will be in the kingdom of heaven. And then you look at the things that it says are an indication you are in the kingdom of heaven. You say, I see very, very few of these things in my life. This is why I say this text is probably central to those who are depressed and who are true believers and who think of killing themselves. Because they say, what's the use? You know, I'm not who the Bible says I should be. 
And, you know, I've had a bunch of Christians tell me that sappy thing that, well, the very fact that you see these things and that you're confessing them is an indication that God's at work in your heart. And you say, you know, maybe that's okay for like a year or two years or three years or even five, ten, fifteen years. But at 30 years and 40 years and 52 years, it gets old to have somebody say, well, you know, the very fact that you see these things in your life is an indication that you're okay. <laughs> and you go, eh, I don't feel okay. You know, maybe when I'm 82, you know, uh, you're going to still be saying that to me. And I'm facing the door of heaven and hell. And it's like I look down and I go, you know, and it doesn't seem to cut it, does it? It's very interesting. This is what Luther says about this. He says this. Speaking of those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Luther says this is a very hard and terrible saying. Don't you love that? Don't you love it when Scripture's honest? Don't you love it when people who teach Scripture are honest? This is a very hard and terrible saying. He goes on and he says, but it's yet very necessary against false Christians and careless hypocrites who brag of the gospel of their faith and of their, the Holy Spirit And yet, in all security, they perform the works of the flesh. In other words, again, we have people in our midst who brag of the Holy Spirit being in them, who brag of their faith, who brag of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, of being Christians, of having faith. He says it's necessary to give such a terrible and hard saying to them so that they are not in all security performing the works of the flesh and headed for hell with nobody warning them. But chiefly, the heretics bring being puffed up with opinions of spiritual matters as they dream are possessed of the devil and altogether carnal. Therefore, they perform and fulfill the the desires of the flesh, even with all the powers of the soul. Therefore, most necessary it was that so horrible and terrible a sentence should be pronounced by the apostle against such careless contemners and obstinate hypocrites. And he says, the point is so that being terrified by the severe sentence, they may begin to fight against the works of the flesh by the spirit that they accomplish not the same. One of the, and I have said this over and over again, one of the great um, One of the great tragedies in the church today is how much we as Christians try to avoid the conviction of sin in the church and outside the church. And the fact that we simply don't believe that the conviction of sin is an an instrument of grace. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't believe. We don't have faith. And the clearest evidence of our lack of faith is the fact that we try to skip over repentance and conviction of sin when we lead people to Christ. We don't have any of the confidence, the gospel confidence that Jesus had when he talked to the woman at the well. And Jesus knew Scripture and he knew the heart of man. And consequently, he knew that the central reality of her life was her sin. You should know that about every single person that you deal with who is an unbeliever, but you don't know it and you don't believe it because you don't have faith. You don't believe that other people are like you. 
You know your own sin. And, and, you know, speaking personally, I was listening yesterday to the radio trying to stay awake, and I was listening to this dude who called in. Apparently, some uh, jackpot is huge. You know, it's like almost $400 million. So, like, everybody's playing for the jackpot. This guy calls in, and the guy's, you know, the, the talk show host is real excited about the jackpot, you know, and he's, he's playing it, you know, and everybody's talking about what they'll do with the money if they get it. Of course, everybody's going to give it to charity, right? That's what they were all saying, you know. If one of you guys would just win the jackpot, think none of you would have to tithe and give to the church. Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, (laughs) no. In a word, no. So if any of you play the jackpot and you win, we won't take your money unless you repent of having paid it, played it. And, And then we'll take it, but we won't take it as a way of justifying your sin. <laughs> In other words, uh, God is pleased to receive our tithes of our, the first fruits of our labor, <laughs> not of us playing some game that we could hit it big at. All right, but that's another sermon. Okay, so Carol, um, pray that I'll come back. <laughs> okay, she's reeling me in. So we come back to this issue of um, how. We don't have faith in the necessity of sin and the conviction of sin being an instrument of gospel salvation. And we look at Jesus with the, with the woman at the well and we think, well, Jesus was omniscient. He knew everything. He could see the secrets of everybody's hearts. And so he knew her condition and he had an ability of dealing with her in those matters that we don't have the ability of dealing with. And so we avoid sin when we're witnessing to people. And. This is just never how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to solve a problem that our next door neighbor doesn't have. You know, the person that you work with doesn't have. Every single person you can trust, if they're not in the Spirit of God, what is the reality of their life? Now you're going to say sin because I've gotten that much across, right? But I'm going to ask you to be more specific. What is the reality of their life? The text tells you. Look at the text. Tell me what the reality of their life is. Those who are not in Christ, what is the reality of their life? Name them. Come on, name them. What? Immorality, name another one. Greed, name another one. I can't hear you. Idolatry. Name another one. Huh? Sensuality. Name another one. Jealousy. Name another one. Strife. Now, let's stop at strife. At the university of Indiana University, all right, we do an awful lot of things to avoid strife, don't we? We say no to sexism. We say no to racism. We have affirmative action. We do everything we can, right, to avoid strife and to get people to be fair with each other. Is that right? Don't you think fairness is central to what Indiana University thinks it exists to produce? Okay, right? That's why we value pluralism and diversity, right? Because we're trying to minimize strife, right? So tell me, does the math department get along with the sociology department? Or how about... You know, the opera, as opposed to, like, the instrumental side of the music school. How about music theorists and and those who study composition? How about 
somebody who's married to a person who studies composition and they study composition and they're married. Do they get along? You know, two sociologists who are married. How about two male sociologists who are homosexuals, so they share the same sex and they have a covenantal union? Do they get along? I mean, you get my point. It's ridiculous. There's nothing that is more disgustingly backbiting and fighting than an academic community. It's just that it's all covered with hypocrisy. Why do I have, though, the consistent prayer requests of those in graduate school being that they'll avoid the infighting in their department? (laughs) You know? So my point is not to say that we shouldn't make an effort to not fight with one another, that there shouldn't be laws against people fighting assault and battery. My point is not to say that the world is worthless in pursuing peace. I'm not trying to say that diversity is a bad thing, although when diversity covers up sin, it is bad. But certainly, the church is the first one that has said in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. It was the church that got rid of abolition. It wasn't the world. It wasn't in non-Christian societies that slavery got, or excuse me, got rid of slavery. Um, And so we come back to this list and I ask you, when the Bible tells you that someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, this is their life, do you believe this? Do you believe that that's their life? Do you believe that the person that talks endlessly about peace has no peace? Do you believe that the person that appears to be very generous is actually very jealous and very envious? Do you believe the Word of God? If you don't believe the Word of God, then here's what will happen. You will not talk to them about their sin when you're at the well with them. You'll use an excuse. Well, Jesus could see the secrets of her hearts. I can avoid talking because I don't want to be judgmental, but Jesus could be judgmental because he could see the secrets of people's hearts. And so it'll be as obvious to you as the nose on the end of your face, the sin that that person is involved with, but you'll never bring it up because it's not absolutely certain that that's the sin they're dealing with. And all that is is you having no faith. God gives you discernment. You have no faith. You don't use discernment. There's no gospel witness there. If your gospel witness consists of taking good news to those who are lost and they don't know they're lost, it's not good news to them. And so what I'm trying to show you is that if we need this list in order to expose hypocrites in this church, we also need this list in order for us as a church to have the, 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 the guts to do evangelism. If you don't think that this list is a characteristic list of those who don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't believe the Bible, you don't remember how God brought you to himself. (laughs) I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? How did you become a Christian? Because every day and every way the world was great. And so you thought, wow, it could be even greater if I knew Jesus. I mean, this is ludicrous. You didn't come to the cross because you had no burden. You know, Pilgrim's Progress doesn't start with Christian, you know, strumming a guitar and having lots of little children following him. (laughs) If you've ever read it, it begins with his hands over his head, his family seducing him to not go to the cross. And he's screaming with his hands over his head to silence his family, screaming, no, life, life, life. Why? Because he has a burden on his back. 
because he is given to sensuality, to sexual immorality, he's given to envy and jealousy and strife and factions and idolatry. He has this huge weight on his back and he has heard that there is, behind yonder wicked gate, all right, that there is a solution, that there is a cross, that there is light. And if he goes to the light, that the burden will be taken from him. And so if you as a Christian live with other Christians in such a way that everybody is accepted as a Christian and you take a warning like this and you never, ever, ever mention it to the people in the pews next to you, because that's for pagans. And then you go out to the well where there's a Samaritan woman sitting there and you never bring up anything about her sin that God has made as obvious to you as the nose on the end of your face, because after all, you don't want to be judgmental. And of course, you know, that's another error we make. Instead of loving them and bringing it up to heal them, we bring it up to separate ourselves from them and say, well, you know, you're a homosexual, (laughs) you know, and that's yucky. You know, we Christians, you know, we look down on people like you or you're divorced or, you know, you don't homeschool. You use the public. Well, me, I homeschool. I I have a Christian school. We started as Christian school. So, and that's not love. You know, all that does is use the things of God as a way of maintaining our superiority over the people that we love or that we're supposed to love. And so we have innumerable ways of trying to gloss over what Luther says is a very hard and a terrible saying and then a horrible. He uses very hard, terrible and horrible to describe this text. And the reason is, We do not want to repent ourselves. We do not want to think that those in the pews next to us may be in danger of going to hell. We don't want to think that in the church there are many wolves and outside of the church many sheep. We we just want to live on the level of the cosmetics counter at 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 like Ellis Airs. You know, you know, we come to church, we paint our faces, you know, and we all lie to each other. And then we go out into the world and we lie in the world, you know. We act as if everybody's cool. And following Jesus is just one of many ways. And this guy who was talking about, this guy that was talking about the the, uh, lottery, he calls in. They're all talking about giving their money away. And he says, you know, I don't play the lottery. And the talk show host says, oh, come on, you know. He says, listen, this is just my own personal morality. I don't have it for anybody else, but it's just my own personal morality. And of course, that's the other way. We absolutely deny the truth of Scripture. We act as if this list is just a personal list. You can have a different list. Your list might be that sexism and, and, and racism and lack of pluralism are, 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 are his sins. My own sins are idolatry and dissensions and, and, and envy. But if you think envy is good, that's, that's cool. I'm just speaking for myself, you know, and so we go into this relativistic kind of whatever you think is okay for you. But these are my own personal convictions. I personally believe, you know, and all it is, again, is unbelief and lack of love. This is true. The Bible, when the Bible says that this is the life outside of the spirit and those who do these things are not going to go to heaven, that's the truth. And so if you're sitting next to somebody at the well, you know the sin that God has, has given them over to. You know they don't have the Holy Spirit. And you don't give a rip about their sin as long as it doesn't come up in an obvious way that you have to condemn it just so you show that you're better than they are. <laughs> right? 
This is who we are. And the reason is, the minute Jesus really talked to her about the central reality of her life, which was the fact that she'd had all these husbands, she'd failed in love. All right? Do you think that Jesus, having done that, moved on? No, he didn't move on. The people that he dealt with who were sinners continued to be in relationship with him. He hung out there. She went to the village. Come, come out and see the man that's told me everything I've ever done. And it's obvious from that that she didn't do it in a sens- he didn't do it in a censorious way just to, to distance her. You know, you're, you're like, goyim, you're dirty, dirty. You know, hey, it was beautiful when he opened up the secrets of my heart. You come and he'll open up the secrets of your hearts too. Now, come on, what kind of a Christian was that? Well, it was Jesus. You say, well, yeah, but Jesus can do that kind of thing. He can talk to people about their sin in such a way that he's not censorious. Really? Isn't it amazing how we allow Jesus to be a placeholder for everything the Bible has ever commanded us to do? The Bible has said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we say, well, Jesus was omniscient. He knew her sins. He could deal with it in a pastoral way. And then... He was also a prophet, and God hasn't called our preacher to be a prophet. And you, don't, you won't even bring people here for me to do it to them. Because then you'll have to talk to them about their sins afterwards. You know? And you don't want to do that. You know? It'd be much easier for you to deal with them about their sins outside of here. You know? Because then you can modulate it and nuance it. You know? And you don't have to really talk to them about the central reality of their life, which is they've had who knows how many husbands, and they still haven't found love. What did Jesus say to the woman? He said, you know, I can give you something to drink. I can give you water. You'll never thirst again. So what was he talking to about a woman that had been married that many times? You see, brothers and sisters, we don't believe the Bible. We don't believe that God intended that list to be given to us to expose those of us who don't truly believe. And so we have theology to cover it up, and we have all these ways, drugs to take, all this stuff. And then we don't believe it when it comes to those of us who really believe, dealing with others who don't believe. We act as if when they say they're clean, they are clean. Next door neighbor has a clean car, a clean marriage, clean life, hasn't yet divorced his wife. And so we talk to him about movies and about the Super Bowl and about, you know, the All-Star game. Well, if, if Jesus has, has said to us that if we follow him, he'll make us fishers of men, you better believe that that list is the reality of those who are not in Christ. Do you understand me? And if you don't believe that, bring yourself to believe it. This is the reality of that sweet woman that lives next door to you. She's given over to jealousy and envy. And it's not because we're better than she is. It's because we know our hearts. We know the struggle we have as Christians with this. And we know someone that doesn't even have the Holy Spirit struggling in their hearts is completely given over to it. And so this gives you the confidence to go out fishing, believing that there are fish there and that they have a need to be saved. And this will give you confidence in the real preaching of the Word of God that you will believe that people coming under a place where sin is spoken of as if it really does exist. And it isn't just avoiding uh, sexism. You know, that there is such a thing as real sin. 
And then they come in and they find that God is still holy despite the fact that the world denies it. And then they'll fear God and they'll say, where can I go to be saved? And then as you see this, you'll think, oh, okay, so I need to recommit myself to the battle too because this is a path and it is a terrible saying and yet I see in myself that the Holy Spirit is causing me to repent every day. And this is the final thing. Okay? What am I doing? I'm taking that list. I'm applying it to your relationship with unbelievers. I'm telling you that there are unbelievers in the church that you must apply that text to. Okay? I'm telling you outside the church that if you have confidence in that text, the list, that you will deal with people's sin because you love them and you know that's the central reality of their lives. Okay? are those sins. Now, let's apply that list of sins to Christians. What does it have to do with us? How many of those, conservatively, do you plead guilty to? Maybe it would be easier to ask, how many of those do you not plead guilty to? (laughs) That might be easier, right? So how do we deal with that? Do we just say, well, you know, it's just for non-Christians? Well, let me read to you what Calvin says about this. First Luther, then Calvin. Good pair. Calvin says, when you read this list, it makes it sound as if everybody is cut off from hope of salvation. Now, if John Calvin said that, can you admit it? Isn't that what you fear? Don't you fear when you look at yourself that there's no possibility of being saved? He says this, For who is there who does not labor under one or other of these sins? I reply, Paul does not threaten that there shall be excluded from the kingdom of God all who have sinned, but all who remain unrepentant. The saints themselves are sometimes heavily burdened, but they return to the way. In other words, we go off the straight and narrow path. We stray. Um, we're backsliders. We're, we give ourselves to errors. Christian constantly was going off the proper path. Okay. And then he says, because they do not surrender, they are not included in this list. All the threatenings of God's judgment call us to repentance for which pardon is always ready with God. But if we continue obstinate, they will be a testimony against us. Okay? So with non-Christians, this means that we will use this text within the church, understanding that always in the church is a mixture of wheat and tares. And so we won't try to silence warnings like this, saying, well, that's not for Christians, you know. You're right, it's not for Christians, and within the church there are not Christians. Or there are Christians who are not, I should say. We also will bring non-Christians into the church to hear this list, not fearing it, not lacking confidence in it, not thinking, well, I'm going to have such a hard time explaining to my neighbor after we leave church. (laughs) But we're going to believe that the same way that God used to bring us to Christ, namely bringing us under conviction of sin so that we finally flee to the cross, is the way that he's going to bring other people to Christ. Okay, so we have confidence in this list. We think it's good news because then they know why they have to be healed. And then with Christians, we say to them, look, this is to call you to repentance. 
This is not what you should be. Those who give themselves to this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so God is calling us to repentance. Again, we don't silence it with drugs. We don't drug it out of existence. We don't deny it. We don't refuse to read it. But we use it as a tool, a goad to repentance. You know, you think of those shock things that they use with cows. You know, the zappers, right? This is a zapper. And the point of it is not to get us to jump over a cliff, to kill ourselves, to drug ourselves, to like live in la-la land, because it's so painful. The point of this is to drive us to Jesus. And Jesus says, come to me, what? All you who every day and every way the world is getting better and better, (laughs) you know? (laughs) You know, when I laugh, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at myself because I'm thinking how I think, you know. It says, come to me, not you who, like, you know, your life is better and tomorrow it will be even better. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what does it say? I will give you rest. And then it says, take take my yoke upon you. For I am what? This is Jesus speaking. I am what? Meek and humble of heart. And the promise is what? You shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy. It is. It's easy. So if you refuse to repent, you refuse to acknowledge the sin list, you refuse to believe that this is true of yourself, you won't go to him, you won't repent, your yoke won't be easy, your burden won't be light, and it'll get worse and worse in every day and in every way. Because God is not interested in being kind to those who are proud. It says he resists them. But if you come to him, he will heal you. And you will find his yoke easy and his burden light. And if you love your neighbor, you will bring them to that list of sins in this church, in your conversations, out of love. Because until they've heard that list, they won't know why they have to flee to the cross. Let's pray.